Romans 5. But don't get too excited because we're going to go back and do a little bit of review uh, and additional comments in Romans 4. But just trying to let you know where we're going to focus on, and that's going to be Romans, the fifth chapter. So, just by way of review, man sins. That's a problem. We have a dilemma. How is God going to save man? Man saves, or God saves man through his plan of salvation, his solution, and that solution is Christ-focused. And as we saw last week in chapter 4, faith, the kind of faith that Abraham had, is reckoned by God as righteousness. And we made a couple of observations last week, well, several, but a couple that I want to point out, and that is that the faith of Abraham, two things. One, it's the kind of faith that goes against human reasoning, human wisdom. Human wisdom says, no, a woman and a man as old as Abraham Abraham and Sarah couldn't have a child. But Abraham believed against human wisdom. And that was the kind of faith. And it's the kind of faith that in, uh, in Romans 4, Paul uh, describes as, uh, Abraham, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith. And we'll make an uh, observation on, on that point in, in, in a minute. So, number one, it was against human reasoning. But number two, we saw various examples of faith of Abraham that drove him to do something. And so we made the, con- the, the observation that faith the faith that is pleasing to God is an active faith. It's just not mental assent and believing in God and doing nothing about it. But it is an active faith that causes the person to do something. We looked at Hebrews 11 uh, to some degree on, on that. So we talked about that. We talked about faith as a walk of life, a journey. And we got that when we looked at verse 12 of chapter 4. Uh, Paul talks about the fact that not just Abraham... Uh, is, is the father of the circumcision to those who are not only of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of Abraham, our father Abraham, uh, while he walked uncircumcised. And we made an observation that faith isn't just a one-time event. Again, it's not this mental ascent that I believe and everything's good, but it's, an, it's a walk of life. It's a, it's a progress. And that that also comes out in that verse 20 where, he, where Paul talks about uh, Abraham not wavering in unbelief, but grew strong in faith. So we see that growth process. It's a journey. It's not, again, uh, just a one-time event. And then we made some observations about um, the justification through uh the raising of Jesus uh, coming to our justification. And I want to focus a little bit on that. The very last part of Romans 4, because I think it does a very, it does us well to look at that as we look into chapter 5 and looking at justification and the ramifications of justification or the outcomes of justification. So let's, let's go back to verse 23 and make some observations. <coughs> First, notice what Paul says, not for his sake 
only was it written, talking about Abraham, that it was reckoned to him. But notice verse 24, but for our sake also, to whom it will be reckoned as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. So what's he saying here? What, what, what's he saying when he says it's not just for uh, Abraham's sake, but for our sake? Yeah, yeah, we gain from him. I heard something over here. It's our benefit. And you know, I also think about Romans, the 15th chapter, verse 4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scripture, we might have hope. So we can go back and look to Abraham and we can be encouraged, and it's to our benefit, because we see an example of what the, the kind of faith that is pleasing to, to God. And so notice here, the, 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 the belief, the faith, for us, is those uh, who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. We'll come back to that idea later in the in chapter five, and sort of laying some groundwork here. But you know, the a couple of other things I thought of as I was thinking about verse twenty-five and verse twenty-six: who he who was delivered up because of our transgressions was raised because of our justification. So a couple of things I I I, I think are implied here. First, can you, can you see the love that God has here for man? The love that Christ has for man. Because notice, verse 25, he who was delivered up because of our transgression. We'll, come, we'll get to that in more depth in, in, in chapter 5 when we're described as helpless sinners, enemies. But yet, what did Christ do? He came to die. Notice the phrase, though, he who was delivered up. And that phrase actually means to give over into one's power or use. Do you see where I'm going? Because what could Christ have done? What did he tell his disciples? He could have called 12 legions of angels, but he didn't. He didn't call. He gave himself. Think about uh, what John, uh, what Christ says in the book of John, John 10. He laid his life down for us. He gave it his life on our behalf. So when you think about that, think of the immense love, love that I, we just cannot comprehend that. That's the kind of love that Jesus has, that God has for us. And then notice also, the very end, he was raised. So God raised him because of our justification. That goes back to, I think, some comments that we made last week, observations that we made last week. And then also, in Phil's class, what, about two months ago, three months ago by now, looking at 1 Corinthians 15, what does Paul t tell the Corinthians about the resurrection of Christ? 
and its connection to our salvation, our faith. Yeah, there's nothing. There's nothing. Let's go back because this, again, this will connect to our lesson. You're going to think, well, how how is that going to connect? Just bear with me, okay? So notice verse 14. Well, I'll go to verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Okay? So, God raised Jesus for our justification. And then, beginning in chapter 5, and this is where we'll pick up, and, <coughs> and just notice our weekly briefing, that is the main thrust of what I want you to walk away with, is man's justification through faith in Christ results in peace uh, with God who poured out his love for man. So some things I want you to point out or think about, just terms, justification, faith, peace, love. Okay? We'll be coming back to those concepts throughout today's lesson. So with that in mind, let's go to question one. Through whom are we justified? Christ, yes. And what comes as a result of this justification? Peace with God. Now, I'm going to go ahead and just tell you that I saw four things. They're all connected, okay? But I see four things, four takeaways from God's justification, uh, our justification. Number one, I mentioned this last week, but again, I, I think it bears... Uh, mentioning, as I said, we live in a very inclusive world, type of world. If you're in the workplace, you hear all kinds of things about DEI. Everybody needs to be inclusive. But again, as I mentioned this last week, one thing that's not inclusive is Christ. It's salvation. It is exclusive, and that is, you must be in Christ. Uh, And so, why do I keep bearing this out, this exclusivity in Christ for salvation? Because what's the end result if we have this concept of inclusivity? Let me tell you where where my mind is going, because I don't expect you to read what's in Carrie's mind. Very few people do. But think about its relationship to Matthew 28 and the Great Commission. If we think it's everything's inclusive, you're okay, I'm okay, everybody's okay. What does that have, what connection does that have with the Great Commission of our willingness and boldness and ability to go out and teach others? It's not important. Everybody's good. Everybody's happy. Mitch. Do you see what happens with that kind of mindset Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. Everybody does right, you know, according to their own standard. But the standard is Christ. 
and justification is exclusively found in Christ. So second thing I want to point out is, as, you, as you've indicated, is peace. Peace with God. And I want to spend a little bit of time focused on this concept of, of peace with God. Because to me, it's, it, it's, it's amazing uh, uh, at, at what God has done when you really think about peace. Now, let's go all the way back to Isaiah. And you're thinking, why am I going to Isaiah? Isaiah 9, verse 6, is where my mind is going. And in the context of Isaiah 9, uh, Isaiah is prophesying about the coming Messiah. In verse 6, and this is a very common, familiar passage to a lot of people. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Peace, Prince of Peace, we'll have peace, right? Peace, great peace. I want you to go to, before, uh, let's go to Isaiah 57. Because we see this coming Messiah will be a prince of peace. In Isaiah 57, it really talks about the message of the Messiah. And notice in verse... uh, I'm going to go to verse 17. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, and I was angry and struck him, I hid my face and, I, and was angry. He went, on turning, he went on turning away in the way of his heart. I have seen his way, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and to his mourners, creating the praise of the lips. Peace, peace to him who is far off and to him who is near. Now, Connected to that passage, where's this passage right here? Isaiah 57, 19, where is that found in the New Testament? At least where I'm thinking. Ephesians, right? Ephesians 2? Okay, so keep that in mind. Now, so we have a prince of peace. His message is going to be of peace. We see Isaiah, the second chapter, in, in verse 4, and this, I think, is the inscription on the United Nations. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the, into the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, I'm actually in verse 3, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between nations and will render decisions for many people, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. So, what might one conclude what kind of peace is this Messiah bringing? You might think it's a physical, just on the surface, right? But then, when you try to look at and think about Matthew 10, so go to Matthew 10. 
So what does Jesus himself say about his message? Matthew 10, verse 34. Yeah, he said, right, he said, do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Okay, so how, how do we relate to all of this? How, how, what, what are we talking about? So, you know, there's a perception that this peace that Christ is bringing is a earthly peace. You know, the Jews thought the Messiah was what kind of king? An earthly king, right? He's going to set up a physical nation. And now we see what Christ is saying is, I'm not, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And how is that? Because what's the message of Christ? You lose everything because you are a Christian. Yeah, the message of Christ, again, going back to this idea of exclusivity, there are going to be some who accept the message, others who don't. And so let's look at, uh, let's go go ahead to, to Ephesians, the second chapter. Let me go ahead and go there right now. Now, the context of Ephesians up to this point is a revelation of God's plan of salvation, of how the, his plan of how he's going to impart all his spiritual blessings upon man. Chris, I'm sorry, I didn't see your hand. I think of Second Peter 3, 9, uh, where it says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any mm-hmm. should perish. And here's, here's the exclusion, but that all should come to repentance. Right. So right. That's, that's the line that's drawn. It's not a, a certain set of people. And I think that's a big part of Romans is it's not just about the Jews. It's yeah. not just about the Gentiles. Um, it's, it's about just following God. Yeah, and that's a good point because I think, what, two weeks ago we talked about the fact that the salvation was available to all men, to everyone, but not everyone accepts it, okay? So that's Ephesians 1 is all about God's plan. Ephesians 2 is um, looking at the condition of man, a condition of the Gentiles. And notice in verse... Um, 12, again, talking about the Gentiles. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off. Now think about what we read in Isaiah, those who were far off right, had been brought near by the blood of Christ. So how did the Gentiles get near to God? Christ. Because think about Isaiah 59, 
for all men what has separated man. Sin, their iniquities had separated men. But so notice, for he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Now here specifically, I think it's a reference to the law, the division between Jew and Gentile. But the blood of Christ tore that down and made all groups into one. And so notice, I'm going to skip down for sake of time to verse 16, but might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having it put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you and were, who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. So you see this picture of peace that that Christ and what he did provided to the Gentiles and united Gentile and Jew together. And so um, we see this peace, not a physical peace, as Leon said, it is a spiritual peace. Because what has man done? Think about what we, in our review, what's man done? Sinned, separated from Christ, from God. But Christ has, is the means by which man and God can come back together again. And so I want to then think about exclusive in Christ. We have the possibility, the ability as Christians to have peace with God, to be reunited, to be reconciled back to God. And then the third is, notice going back to Romans 5, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. A couple of things I want to talk about, and that is, you know, we have this indescribable peace that we have as Christians to be reconciled back to God. And he mentions it that we are introduced by faith into this grace. What is grace? Favor with God. I sometimes hear we say unmerited favor. It is this kindness shown upon another that is not deserved. What do we deserve? Death. The wages of sin is death, right? But God, through Christ, has shown us his grace, this favor that we did not deserve. And so, um, again, what a magnificent gift that is. And you can see the immense, magnificent love that God has for his children. But I I want you to go back and look at this concept of grace in which we stand. This concept of, of standing is really um, this, this idea of being of steadfast mind, of persevering. It's also used in a couple of other places, and, and I want to go there just so you can get a, an understanding of this. Notice in 1 Corinthians 15, 1. <clears throat> Paul writes to the Corinthians, again, this is the the big chapter on the resurrection. He says, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel 
Think about the gospel, which is throughout the book of Romans. But the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which you also stand. Okay? This idea of being in the gospel, of being, of persevering in God's word. Also in 1 Peter, the fifth chapter. And verse 12. <clears throat> Peter is closing his, this, uh, this letter. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. And notice what Peter says, stand firm in it. So it's this idea of perseverance, of enduring um, and, uh, in, in, the, in the faith, in the, in the gospel. And that is the means by which we can uh, stand in this grace. The next thing I want to just briefly mention is um, the idea of exalting in hope. Because verse 2 concludes, and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. You know, Turn to, to turn to Hebrews, the sixth chapter. In Hebrews six, notice in verse. I'm going to start with verse eighteen. In order that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have a strong encouragement, we who have fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope set before us. And notice specifically how this hope is described. This hope, and what's the hope? But when you look at the context, it is this uh, this exhortation to maturity. It's, it's the result of that that eternal life, that blessing that God uh, has, uh, has promised. Notice this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. So what's our hope? Heaven is our hope. We have promises from God, and what's the promise to God from God? The, ho- the promise is eternal life, that we will be raised from the dead in a manner similar to how God raised Jesus. And Jesus is our forerunner. We see that, isn't that 1 Corinthians 15? That God raised Jesus, and God, if he did that for Jesus, he can do that for us. The resurrection of the dead, eternal life, that is our hope. And that should be what grounds us into uh, to faithfulness. Now, speaking of hope, he then begins this journey to describe this journey to where we get this hope. And we really have a firm grasp of hope. And there are four things that he describes. So that's 
Question two, I asked, describe the journey of, of to hope. I gave the answer to you, okay? And I think it's interesting to note what's number one. Tribulations. And so notice right here in verse three, and not only this, but we exalt in our tribulations. Really? We're supposed to rejoice when we have sufferings, hard times? Now, you know, I'm going to say this. You know, no doubt that physical suffering and hardships can make us mentally stronger. We're going to have that stronger fortitude. And to some degree, it can help us from a spiritual perspective. But I think we, we fall short if we think the tribulations are just physical in nature. I think we've got to really think about the fact that what really makes us spiritually strong are the spiritual difficulties and hardships and the temptations. That's what gets us through from a spiritual perspective. Think about James, the first chapter. I'm sure you knew I was going to James. You know, before that, let's, let's, let's go to 2 Timothy first. Then we'll go to James. So 2 Timothy 3. What does Paul assure Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12? We will be persecuted. So he's making Timothy and, and his reader, his audience... And uh, meaning us, in full disclosure, Paul is saying, if you're going to profess godliness and you're going to go down that road of godliness, you need to understand the cost. You need to have certain expectations. And it's, you know, I'm in the mortgage business. So what do we do? We have a packet of disclosures that the government requires us to give all, anybody who wants to buy a house or refinance or whatever. Why is that? Because we lenders and the government want to make sure that the borrower fully understands what they're getting into. That's exactly what Paul's doing for Timothy. He's making sure that those who profess godliness, who want to live godliness, understand there's going to be some hard times spiritually. There's going to be persecution. But notice what James says. So now go to James 1. And verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. We'll get to the endurance part in just a minute. But again, we got to expect it. But when it comes, we don't go, woe is me. We rejoice in it because we know the outcome of those temptations, of those spiritual trials. And go to 1 Peter because we also understand it's not going to help us endure, but what does these temptations do? They refine our faith even more. And so notice, beginning in verse 5 of First Peter 1, 
who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, this, these tribulations help refine our faith and help us then get stronger spiritually so that we can endure. And I just want to make one other observation. When you go back to Hebrews 11, at the close of that chapter, you know, the writer of Hebrews has talked about all these people of faith. And, and to some, what they endured because of their faith. But notice the, the description in verse 38 for these men and women. Men of whom the world was not worthy. That's how God looks at it. That his people are not worthy of the world. The world is not worthy of them. And so we see then that we, we can expect these tribulations but we can also know and have confidence that those, those tribulations, that's those spiritual temptations and trials will come about and bring perseverance. And this idea of perseverance is constancy, endurance, steadfastness. And really think about that, what I said with, with reference to grace. Tolly, just a second. I guess I just needed some clarification because obviously in James, the testing of your faith, and we're talking about Abraham, and maybe I'm just, mis I don't understand, but he was tested. It was a physical test to go offer up his son. And that was not necessarily spiritual. It just, you see what I'm saying? I'm just trying to understand that I don't think it's all just spiritual no, I, tribulations. I think it could be physical too. Right, Yes. Um, so let me rephrase what I said earlier. I'm not denying the fact that physical hardships can make us mentally stronger, physically stronger, and to some degree spiritually stronger. But I think many times we focus on the physical trials and we negate or we ignore the power of the spiritual trials. Does that make sense? So it, it can, can, both can help us. But I just don't want to overlook and ignore the spiritual trials that we endure, the temptations, the struggles, the persecution that can help us endure. That's, that's the point I was making. Thank you, Tali. Leanne. Sometimes it's like Tali says, it's a combo of physical and spiritual. Sometimes it's just spiritual. But what it mostly is, is it's emotional as well, because it, you have to um, endure the temptation, but above all, you have to overcome the temptation. So it could be physical, it could be spiritual, it could be both. Um, but either way, it's very um, emotionally draining as well for the person, because, but in the, in the long run, 
when that temptation or that thing comes back, you are more able to cope with it and more able to handle it because you've endured endured it before. So this is how God causes you to grow as a Christian. This is how God causes your soul to grow. And you never stop growing as a Christian. This is how you grow. And just like when you grow up, you have growing pains. Mm-hmm. Spiritually, you can have growing pains yeah. as well. And so that's the, that's the perseverance. That's the endurance. But that's also how we become and have that proven character that uh, Paul ta- writes about or talks about in verse 4 of chapter 5, this proven character. Uh, and, you know, a- a- again, it's the inward man, not the physical outward man, but it's the inward man. Connected a little bit, Leanne, to the, to the emotional aspect, but the character of the man. And I couldn't help but think about first, uh, first Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, because in the midst of persecutions, of trials, the apostles and those who were ministers in, or evangelists in, in the gospel, they underwent immense persecution, uh, as, as Paul uh, describes in the middle of Second uh, Corinthians uh, 4. But notice in verse 15... For all things are for your sakes, that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And to me, that's, that's indicative of this proven character where the inner man is being renewed and strengthened, not this outer man, the shell, okay? And so through tribulations, we endure. Through endurance, we, we build up, we exercise that inner man. And then he concludes, and proven character, hope, because the one whose tribulations, who's endured, whose character has been developed, What's he going to realize about God and his promises? They're true. And you think about hope being that confident expectation of good that God will provide. This is what's so strong about the hope that we have. But there's a journey to hope. And it comes over time uh, through the things that we suffer. So, Notice this in verse 5, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So going to question 3 then, what has been poured out within our hearts and by what means? Spirit, right? God's love through the Spirit. And so I, I wanted to, to think about in, in what capacity, uh, you know, and, and we, could, we could spend an entire class on the, the Spirit or more. But in, in the context here, when you think about Romans 1 through up to this point, I want to think about it in this way. So in Hebrews 8, 
go to Hebrews 8, and, and the writer of Hebrews is comparing the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. What was the Old Covenant? Do what? It was Moses' law, and notice here, um, uh, let's go back uh, to verse 9 of chapter 8. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers, speaking about the law, the law of Moses, on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them upon their hearts. There's a change. And so the point that I'm making is what is written in their heart? The word of God, the, God's, the, the message of the gospel. Okay, that is what is written in their heart. Uh, and what effect did that gospel have, let's say, on the Jews on the day of Pentecost? They repented. They were, they were what? They pricked their hearts. That was really what I was looking for because we see the power of the gospel to change men's lives. And, and think about the fact that he, Ephesians 1, I know I'm going all over the place this morning, but just trying to make some connections. But notice in Ephesians 1 verse 13, in him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel, okay, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. And this concept of seal is authenticated. We were authenticated by the Spirit because of our response to this message, because we, um, we have obeyed it. We were pricked in the heart. We obeyed those things. Um, and, and so... You know, the, the word of God changes lives. And when you think about going back to he, uh, Romans 5, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out with him within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And then he goes and describes this, the state that we are in before God. We're helpless. We're sinners. We're his enemies. And so notice what then Paul talks about, the fact that um, in, in this condition, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for us. So my question, question four was, what did Christ do when we were helpless, sinners, and his enemies? So I've tried to combine these three descriptions into one, looking at it from Christ's perspective. What did Christ do? He died. Again, we noticed this earlier, how powerful a message of love that is. And when you think about the, 
going back to Ephesians, I'll just read this real quick. Ephesians 3.19. But in Ephesians 3.19, Paul is praying, and he prays that the Ephesians may know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Think about it. What did Christ do? It's through Christ that the worlds were created, right? Colossians. He is God. But what did he do for us, even though we were helpless sinners and his enemies? Yeah, that, yeah and that's Philippians. So in Philippians, we see that Christ died for us. He humbled himself, even to the point of the cross. He humbled himself. And so we're going to stop here. We'll pick up with what God did and the ramifications for that. In two weeks, next week, we have the gospel meeting. We'll pick up, and then that will give us a good lead-in to the latter half of, of Ephesians 5, which is very often misunderstood. Okay, so two weeks from today, we'll pick up and finish chapter five.